Architect Exam Prep, Programming and Analysis, Module 3, Section 3.2, Site Reports and Documentation. Hello and welcome to Section 3.2, Site Reports and Documentation. We're going to jump right in it today with surveys. So surveys are legal documents that fully describe the location, shape, and boundaries of a parcel of land. In addition, surveys show special features of the site that might be relevant to site planning and development. Now there are different levels of surveys. There is preliminary, construction, and possession. So a preliminary survey is a basic plan showing the boundaries, orientation, and maybe some other features. This is used to prepare initial design plans. A construction survey is a highly detailed plan showing the exact conditions of the site, details, existing structures, topography, offsets, and benchmarks. And then the possession survey, also known as an as-built survey, and this is done after construction to document the final completed project. And in the study guide, you can see our typical preliminary survey. Now, since a survey is measuring a piece of the earth, there are two ways to document it. There is the geodetic way and the plane way, P-L-A-N-E. A geodetic survey is a type of survey that takes into account the spherical shape of the earth and describes large land areas with great precision, so it eliminates distortion. Now, a plane survey, again, P-L-A-N-E, this survey presents the site as a flat plane. Although technically it is distorted, this is the one that we use most often. Now, plane surveying can be presented in two ways, a land survey and a topographic survey. Now, a land survey indicates the general measurements of the site and the legal boundaries, also called meets and bounds, of the property. Topographic survey uses dashed lines to indicate the topography and elevation above a set base point called a datum or above sea level. In land surveying, distances between points are measured in feet using decimals, such as 47.128 feet, on a horizontal plane. Vertical distance or elevation is expressed with reference to the distance above sea level or some other established reference point, again called a datum. The boundaries of the site, known as meets and bounds, are often described by the relation to true north. For example, and I'm going to give you a description here of meets and bounds, and then I'll explain it. So N, 30 degrees, 13 minutes, and 22 seconds E. Okay, now let's describe that. So N, 30 degrees, 13 minutes, and 22 seconds E. This describes a straight line that starts by pointing north and then rotates 30 degrees, 13 minutes and 22 seconds toward the east. The length of that line is described in feet using decimals, such as 34.11 feet. Now let's talk about some land survey terms. 
First up, we have baseline, a parallel line following the latitudes of Earth used as the basis for the east-west layouts of the U.S. survey system. Standard parallels, parallel lines between the baselines in a survey. Principal meridian, meridian is a north-south line that follows longitude of the Earth that serves as the basis for the north-south grid layout of a survey. Guide meridian. Meridians between the principal meridians in a survey. Meets and bounds. Verbal description of land that begins at a known point and describes the bearing and length of each side of the property until the point of the beginning is reached. Now let's take a look at some topographic survey terms. Contour interval. Change in elevation between two contours, typically at one foot. Smaller scale maps typically have a larger interval for clarity. Crown or ridge. Contours point down toward the lower elevation. Swale or valley. Contours point up towards the higher elevation. Hills, concentric circles with elevations getting higher towards the center. Depression, concentric circles with the elevations getting lower towards the center. Next up, let's talk about topographic considerations. First thing I want to do here is take a look at the overview of topography slopes. And if you're following along in your study guide, figure 2-3, shows these slopes that we're about to talk about. If you're not following along in the study guide, no worries. We'll cover them here. First one, uniforms, uniform slopes. These are indicated on the topography plan by evenly spaced parallel contours. Convex slopes. They are where the ground slopes, like the top of a circle, think of a contact lens here, they're shown by parallel contours spaced at increasing intervals going uphill. The closer contours are at the lower elevation. Water will shed away from a convex slope. Concave slopes are where the ground is scoped out like a cave. They're shown by parallel contours spaced at decreasing intervals going uphill. The closer contours are at the higher elevation. Water will collect and pool in a concave slope. Ridges are long, thin, flat areas that slope down on both sides. A ridge is indicated by contours which point downhill. Water will shed down both sides of a ridge. So if you've done any hiking in the mountains and you've been on a trail where you've been up high and it's sloping on both sides of you, chances are you are on the ridge. Summits and depressions are high or low flat areas. They're represented by concentric closed contours. For both forms, spot elevation should be included at the highest or lowest point. Now, some general rules here for contour lines. Let's uh, look at those. Number one, all points along the contour have the same elevation, which is indicated by a number. Number two, contour lines never split off, although two identically numbered contours may appear side by side, such as along the top of a ridge. Number three, contour lines never cross each other except where there's an odd condition like an overhanging cliff. Number four, 
equally spaced contours indicate a uniform sloping surface, the same slope going uphill or downhill. Number five, closely spaced contours indicate a steep slope. The closer together they are, the steeper the slope. Number six, far apart contours indicate a slight grade. The farther apart the contours, the flatter the slope. Number seven, a contour that closes on itself is either a summit, a high spot, or a depression, a low spot. Number eight, contours that run in straight parallel lines indicate a plain surface. Number nine, water will always drain perpendicular to the contours because this is the shortest distance and hence the steepest route of travel. Number 10, a spot elevation is a number corresponding to the exact elevation at a key point on the ground. Now let's move into talking about some general rules for grading. Rule number one, cut earth is generally more stable than filled earth since the cut earth has been there for millions of years. Because of this, cut slopes are generally permitted to be steeper than filled slopes. Number two, when possible, the least expensive and most convenient way to grade the site is to balance the amount of cut and fill. Number three, grading cannot extend beyond the property lines of the site or disturb the neighbor's property. Number four, strip and save all topsoil prior to grading for later use. Number five, save the existing trees and vegetation when possible by grading around it. Number six, avoid creating flat grades that will not drain water correctly and form drainage pockets. Number seven, avoid soil erosion by grading the slopes within their natural angle of repose, which is the natural slump of the soil. Number eight, be certain that the final finished grades will allow water to flow away from all structures. And number nine, avoid grading solutions that rely on expensive waterproofing, retaining wall steps, or other heavy construction. And in the study guide, you can see a cut and fill diagram from Eric's Green Building and Remodeling for Dummies book. Now let's take a look at some land division terms. First up, we have check. A check refers to each 24-mile square created by the meridians and parallels and divided into 16 townships. Now a township, each check is divided into four by four squares creating 16 townships per check. Each township is six miles square and numbered and designated as north or south of the baseline and east or west of principal meridian. Section. One mile square parcel of land containing 640 acres. Townships are subdivided into six by six squares, creating 36 square sections, each one a square mile, and quarter section. Sections are divided into four quarters, each being a half mile long on each side. Now, I know this sounds confusing just listening to this uh, via the audio, but check out the study guide, figure 1.5. This will make a whole lot more sense. All right, moving into water on a site. Swamp, a wetland with a permanent inundation of large areas of dry land protruding out of shallow bodies of water. Swale, 
an elongated depression in the land carrying water downhill. Since water flows into swales, they are seasonally wet and usually well vegetated since seeds get carried into the swale. Detention Pond a low-lying area designed to temporarily collect and hold a set amount of rainwater, allowing the water to slowly drain into the ground or another location. Detention ponds are used for flood control to prevent large amounts of rainwater to surge into the sewer all at once. Retention Pond Similar to a detention pond, a retention pond is a low-lying area designated to collect and hold a set amount of rainwater indefinitely. Typically, the retention pond is designed with overflow drainage in case the water level rises above the pond's capacity. Riparian Rights A system of rights and duties that determine the reasonable use, duties, and allocations of water to owners of waterfront property, Includes bottomland, beach, and upland, but not the water itself. Owners can use water adjacent to their property, but can't infringe upon the rights of the others to use the water. And finally, sheet flow. Water that flows across paved surfaces. Now let's move into water table concerns. If the water table is located less than six feet below the surface, then the foundation, excavation, utilities, and underground structures will require special consideration and may have to be dug more deeply. Since water expands when it freezes, this is especially important in areas with cold winters. Ideally, the building would not penetrate into the level of the water table to avoid these issues. If installing a foundation or basement below the water table, special waterproofing and detailing are needed. The concrete walls are subject to leaking and seepage due to capillary action. The foundation will have to be strengthened to resist the hydrostatic pressure from the water. A couple of points here to prevent future drainage problems. Uh, number one, we could connect new on-site drainage to the natural drainage. Two, we could design surface water runoff based on the worst-case storm scenario. Three, we could prevent land erosion by using swales, which are depressions in the land, gabions, which are wire baskets filled with stones, or xeriscaping, which is drought-tolerant plants. General rule of thumb for drainage slopes. Let's look at a couple of those here. Less than 4% slope is considered flat and suitable for all activities. Between 4% and 10% is considered moderate, so that's a 4-foot to 10-foot rise per 100 feet. This requires some effort to climb or descend. Between 10% and 50% is steep and may only be suitable for limited activity. Over 50% is considered very steep, and that is subject to soil erosion or collapse. Storm drains require a 0.3% minimum slope. Sanitary sewers require a 0.4 to 1.4% slope. Street surface drainage requires a 0.5% minimum slope. Now, general rules of thumb for graded slopes. So those were drainage slopes. Now let's talk about graded slopes. Roadways should not exceed a 10% slope. A 15% slope approaches the limit a vehicle can climb for a sustained period of time. Automobile ramps can have a maximum slope of 8%. 
Parking lot areas should not exceed 5% slope. Planted or paved areas require a 1% minimum slope. Grass areas should not exceed a 25% slope. Planted banks can have a maximum slope of 50%, and sidewalks, streets, or driveways can have a maximum slope of 10%. Now let's move into existing buildings. So the first thing here, existing building assessment or survey options. So an existing building oftentimes will need a full survey and inspection during the programming phase. The following are the types of surveys or inspections an owner may choose to have performed. The first one is a site survey showing the property lines and existing buildings on the site. This is useful to determine if existing buildings can be expanded based on local zoning and building codes. A soils report may be required for existing buildings that require expansion or new foundation systems. So we're going to want to investigate that existing soil if we are adding on to the building or, or doing additional foundation work. A foundation survey to inspect the existing foundation system. Structural systems would need to be inspected, including evaluation of existing horizontal resistance systems. Major building systems, including fire and life safety, mechanical, electrical, plumbing, lighting, and elevator systems all would want to be inspected. And finally, test for any hazardous materials such as asbestos or radon. Now, when field measuring existing buildings, there are a couple of different tools we can use. First is field measurements. So they're taken by hand using a tape measure, laser measure, or 3D scanner. Laser scanning allows for quick and accurate measurement of existing spaces. And photogrammetry, which is really a fancy word for saying taking measurements from photographs used to measure remote sites or properties. Let's look at site considerations. So here we could choose a south-facing site to provide sunlight, and we can use overhangs or deciduous trees to control summer sun. We can locate the building in the middle brow of the hill because the top of the hill is too windy and the bottom might be too cold and foggy. We can also orient orientate the building to capture cooling summer breezes using courtyards or porches but block chilling winter winds with trees, hedges, or walls. Now some local considerations. Suburban areas, lowest cost for development due to ease of access, low labor, and space on the site. Urban areas, highest cost for development due to the opposite reasons. So more expensive, uh, more expensive to build, higher labor rates, uh, space is at a premium, so we're going to pay more for it. And rural areas have a variable cost based on access and availability of skilled labor. So there's going to be variables involved if we're, if we're in a rural area. Next up, identifying potential land issues. Groundwater within six feet of land surface may cause an issue with the foundation. Pump water out of excavation site. Waterproof the basement walls, design the basement walls to resist hydrostatic pressure, install a continuous drain pipe along the foundation. Hard rock at or near the surface may require explosives or drilling in order to excavate for the foundation. If soil contains soft clay, sand, or silt, it may require deeper foundations or piles to be driven 
or removal of the soil. Avoid siting structures above underground streams or aquifers. When excavating dirt, balance the cut and fill so the soil taken away roughly equals the soil spread around the site. Let's go ahead and finish up this section with some additional considerations. First one here, geotechnical reports. A soils engineer prepares a geotechnical report reporting on the type and extent of the soils. Depending on the site, the engineer can use test borings, which is drilling out tubes of soil from the ground, or historical data to determine the soils. The structural engineer then will use this information to determine the appropriate type and depth of the foundations. Landscape reports. These reports list the types and species of plants on site, including any invasive species that might try to take over other species or any water-intensive plants that will require a lot of irrigation. Next up, utility surveys. These show any easements or rights-of-ways from the utility companies that currently conceal buried power lines or could be used in the future. These will limit the location of buildings as we are not permitted to build within an easement or right-of-way. Demographics. The age, gender, race, and background of the people in the local neighborhood could influence the functions of the project. Traffic studies. Such reports show the quantity, frequency, and capacity of the surrounding traffic patterns to help determine the best place for vehicular access or how this project would contribute to the traffic patterns. And then finally, historic reports. This background investigation into the site also includes any existing buildings and whether anything historically significant occurred on the site. This could trigger certain historic preservation requirements or even limit what alterations we are permitted to make to the existing structure. And that, my friends, is going to wrap up Section 3.2. My name is David Doucette. I'll see you inside Section 3.3.